HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hi there, I'm Yom, host of Item 13, an African food podcast. I'm excited to be joining the Heritage Radio Network this year as we kick off our fourth season of the podcast. On Item 13, we cover all aspects of the African food ecosystem. You will hear West Africans squabble over who has the best jollof. Newsflash, it's Ghana. It's time to celebrate our jollof. Like we are done with comparing who and who did what. Yeah. And jollof is not just about even the rice, it's about the protein that goes with it. Guests share their expertise on African food ingredients and spices. This is a region where, you know, even if you look at 18th century maps, you know, you had something called the pepper coast. Fresh and aromatic peppers. That is what distinguishes West Africa. Tips on marketing food businesses. A good way to engage your audience is to take them on that journey. You know, get them talking about this idea you have. That way you are engaging them. They are engaging with each other. And you're getting useful insights that you can then pull from and use to develop your recipe. This season, my goal is to focus on more stories outside of English-speaking West Africa. So you'll hear stories from Benin, from Uganda, Liberia, and even Haiti. You'll also hear us discuss the impact of the Black Lives Matter movement and how COVID-19 has impacted some of the businesses featured on the show. You can catch up now on previous episodes of Item 13, wherever you listen to podcasts, and join us this season as we debut on HRN. Thank you. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and we're going to have a really interesting discussion, like completely new to me. We will be speaking today with Dr. Jeff Anderson, who is a professor in the Michigan State University's Department of Geography, as well as being the state climatologist for the state of Michigan. He has professional experience with the National Weather Service and with the USDA's World Agricultural Outlook Board in Washington, D.C., where he was involved in international crop and weather impact assessments and production estimations. He currently serves as director of Michigan's Enviro Weather Information System, which supports agricultural pest and production management related decision making across the state. And you can find that uh, website um, at Enviro weather.msu.edu. And as an extension specialist, he maintains an active outreach program, including dissemination of weather and climate data and information to the general public and continuing education activities. I'm sorry, it's a long bio, but it's so worth telling you everything about this man because he is clearly such a rock star. Okay. Teaching responsibilities include courses in agricultural climatology. You can see why I want to have this man on my show, like basically every week, meteorology, general, uh, sorry, regional climatology and physical geography, primary focus of Anderson's research has been the influence of weather and climate on agriculture, both in the USA and in international production areas. Current and past themes include climatological trends and potential impacts, crop simulation modeling, 
agricultural irrigation, impacts associated with potential future changes in climate, weather, and risk management, and the influence of land use changes on regional climate. Welcome to the program, Jeff. Well, thanks very much. For, <laughs> glad to be here. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I mean, you know, I've been doing, you know, I don't know if I mentioned this when we did that little piece on the derecho, but I have been doing this show for 10 years and it's never occurred to me more than 10 years. And it's never occurred to me to go in search of a climatologist slash meteorologist slash, you know, expert on how those uh, two disciplines affect agriculture. And yet you really are, you're kind of the gold, you're the, you're the golden goose, my man. I mean, you have the, you've got the real information. So let us start this interview with um, you telling us about your work and your how you synthesize your work as a as a climate uh, as a geographical a geography professor and meteorologist with the discipline of agriculture. Well, as you you've outlined, I, my specialty uh, discipline basically spans two two major areas of. Uh, of, of well, of science and agriculture, and then atmospheric science, and I think basically what what I do, or what people like me do, is to realize that uh, weather and climate are are for most food production systems are key, uh, if not dominating, external factors in terms of controlling uh, almost all aspects. Pretty of, much, yeah. Uh, and uh, the idea is to to try to come. Uh, to, well, to be able to make better decisions, to be able to design a more efficient, uh, more sustainable food production system. And uh, again, how how weather and climate play into that, because they have such an important role. And it's uh, it's never boring. I can I can uh, definitely <laughs> attest to that. There's uh, it. So that that theme is it, though comes back over and over and over again. And most of my work is is here uh, in the Midwest and the now in the Great Lakes region, uh, but I have worked in other parts of the world. And that these uh, dependencies are different depending on where you go. But uh, again, ultimately, most everything comes back or many things come back to a weather and climate angle. And again, the idea is to try to help improve the understand that understanding between the dependency uh, in in the food production system, and hopefully with that to to make a again a more efficient system and to allow the especially allow the producers uh, to try and maybe make uh, more informed uh, and maybe better decisions regarding weather and climate. Well, we we could drill deep into what better decisions they could be making, but um, that is maybe for later in the program, if not a completely different interview. Um, but let me ask you this: how do you how do you interface with uh, your agricultural community? I mean, obviously, the work you're doing on modeling climate. And meteorological events uh, is somehow pushed out to the agricultural community at large. Who 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 is doing that? Who is doing that for you? How do you reach those people? Do they come to your website? Do they, you know, I mean, do you give lectures? I mean, what what's the method? Right. Well, it's it, there's there's several pieces or several layers. I get to that. That's uh, that part of the of the how this works. But uh, I I work uh, in a university in a state which is very, very diverse uh, agriculturally. Uh, I believe, depending on how it's defined, either second or third uh, largest number of, of crops produced commercially, uh, which is a little surprising. But uh, because of that, uh, we have a, we have an awful lot going on in the agricultural sector, ranging from the traditional row crops like corn, soybeans, wheat, to, uh, to specialty crops uh, like tree fruit and blueberries, and strawberries. Uh, we have a large... Uh, uh, greenhouse, glasshouse industry, uh, so you name it. We have we have hops uh, now for for brewing and beer making. So it's it's very very diverse, and all of these crops have different vulnerabilities and and different links with weather. But in terms of the information flow, uh, of course, research takes place uh, on campus and at a number of different places around the state and around the region. We work we work with other collaborators in other states here as well. But the key factor here, I think, is that we have uh, uh, blessed to have a very, very strong uh, extension system within uh, the state of Michigan. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the results and, and the, uh, I guess, the whatever is gained in terms of knowledge, uh, hopefully ultimately makes it back out to the real world. But uh, there, it's a two-way street. And so that, that's a really important part of this, uh, the way that this thing works is, yes, that, that uh, research goes on here and hopefully some of that flows back out to the, 
to the real world where it can be used, but there also is a flow of information in the other direction. And a lot of that has to do with, well, what, what the needs, what the problems that are observed, uh, what are the challenges that growers or what elements of the industry face. And so uh, between in that two-way street, there, there's a lot of, lot of places to interact and to try to hopefully add, uh, add some information. And so uh, I also deal with directly one-on-one with people, uh, people call and, and ask mm-hmm. for something as simple as a request about uh, climate that occurred, uh, you know, maybe 50 years ago, or, uh, or how does, how does this summer compare with, with last year? Uh, it, it, it varies. So it's, it's a general outreach to the public, and that's part of my uh, my appointment. Uh, and and what about the ERS, the Economic Research Services? Because they don't they model a lot of sort of what uh, people are should plant and how much they should plant, and and sort of help uh, farmers predict markets. But surely they must also have to give farmers predictions about um, you know weather cycles or patterns. Do you also they, work within that yes. group as well? They, they they do well. We certainly work in collaboratively with the, the in, in a larger sense with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which which ERS is a part of, and they 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 have a very very broad and diverse uh, group of of uh, pieces and, and elements, each each contributing, and and so yes, we we do work with them. They're also uh, besides that, I mentioned other universities, which is which is also very common. Uh, there's also a, a large private commercial sector in the agricultural right. industry where uh, folks are doing their own research, collecting their own data and uh, trying to, again, uh, answer or, or respond to some of the same questions and mm-hmm. challenges. So it's a, it's a multifaceted effort uh, all in all. The, the university is one part of it. You know, I mean, the thing that leaps out at me is that, I mean, when we're talking about sort of trying to explain to farmers what to predict or how climate is affecting their crops and what they decide to do, it's also true that that what they do has this gross impact, I mean, almost oversized impact on how the climate is shifting. And and that's something I want to get into with you. But, I, right. you know, it's just the irony of that, or I don't even know if it's ironic. It's just like, you know, it's so uh, intertwined. You know, the way we farm here has had these massive uh, influences on climate change. And um, as I say, that may be another program. I don't know. Maybe we'll get into it. But what I what I wanted to get into right now is when you look at climate patterns of today versus ten years ago or five years ago, what what are the what are the most uh, striking changes that you see? To me, and and this again would probably be a little bit uh, parochial of thinking about where I am and located, but it would be I think be fairly representative for the upper Midwest, which is a, a big agricultural area in the United States, but it's getting wetter. And it's not just that it's getting wetter with more precipitation, but but we're seeing more extreme events, uh-huh. uh, especially on the higher end. And uh, it, it's this is, a, you, you mentioned irony, and this is somewhat ironic because if we look at the, the major limitation, weather and climate related limitation for for many of the food crops that are produced in this part of the world, the either the lack of or the abundance of water is the number one factor in terms of describing the that variation from year to year. So having having water is a really really important part, and it is for all of our, our global food production system. So having more water through precipitation, at least on the surface, is is generally a positive thing. But it, of course, it's always more complicated than that, and you can, you always have to be careful for what you ask. The old uh, adage says, mm-hmm. "Be careful uh, how much you ask for," because in many cases we see instances of too much uh, water. And this is uh, one example of that. Is uh, uh, we have seen a trend in the springs for uh, a decrease in the number of days that 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 field work can take place because of wetness in the spring. And we had the the classic example. Of this occurred in uh, in uh, uh, 2019 when we had one of the wettest springs on record. And as a result of that, uh, growers could not plant crops, at least not on time. There were, there were major delays and there was a record amount of area of, that wasn't planted just because it, it was never dry enough. Hmm. Uh, that's something that hasn't happened before, but it is a direct reflection of the, the trend that I'm talking about here. Uh, and, and so you can have too much of a good thing, certainly. Uh, you know, it does reduce risks in other parts of uh of of the production cycle so that 
um, for me personally, that would be on the top of my list. I, I suspect there would be others that would agree with that. Well, that, that's that was my next question is, is do you feel like the meteorological community uh, is united in its thinking about weather patterns and climate disruption? Or do you feel like there are still uh, elements of dissenting voices that challenge these views about how weather patterns uh, relate to climate overall, meaning climate disruption or climate change or whatever you want to call it, global warming, it doesn't matter? Well, the, at least in terms of the patterns that we're, we're talking about right now, which are, which are essentially observed changes or observed trends, uh, I, I pretty much everybody would be on the same page. We're, we're looking at the same the same base numbers, I think one could probably, uh, the interpretation and, and the impact, that could be another uh, area. Well, we, we, we can maybe disagree with that, but I, I think most of these would all end up on the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. It's like, yes, everybody can see that the rain gauge is, you know, five inches taller, yeah. you know, fuller this year than it was last year. But is everybody going to be saying, well, this is a result of, you know, climate pattern oh. disruption or change that we have, that is basically unprecedented, I guess is what Right. I'm the, the attribution question is, is another part of it. Mm -hmm. If we look at, a, in a, I guess, in a bigger picture and we look at what uh, certainly what's happened and what's projected. And I would say right off the bat that that much of what has been projected for the long term future, again, here in the Midwest, uh, we have been observing. Uh, and I, I personally don't think that that is completely coincidence. Uh, that, that and it gives us, I think, a little bit more confidence about these projections. But uh, those projections do call for a certainly a climate here uh, significantly much warmer than has been the case historically. And depending on the time frame, uh, maybe a little bit wetter in the shorter mm -hmm. term here over the next couple of decades, but ultimately uh, possibly even a little bit drier. And, and we can talk more about that here in a bit. It depends on the time range uh, that you're how far out you're looking, but. Uh, some of how what I far out can you go? How far well, out can you model? The, mostly, uh, this this depends on the 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 purpose and the the I guess the need. But in general, many of these these projections that we're talking about go out uh, essentially about a century out, but through yeah. the, the the current century. Uh, that that's uh, and and they to do this requires a great deal of uh, of computer resources and and know how and it, it's a it's a it's a quite a demanding thing and there are uh, a few dozen groups around the world that have the resources and the wherewithal to do this but but thankfully they do and uh -huh. each it's it's done on a, on a recurring basis as the science improves uh, and, and uh, the ability to simulate climate I think is is also improving. But generally, there are some research uh, projects that go beyond that, but but many of them essentially go out through uh, about, a, a, about a century through the end of, or at least through the end of the current century, if not a little bit longer. I don't think I want to know. <laughs> I think I'm too scared to ask that question. Um, but let's talk for a minute about the derecho, which is how you and I met. Uh, for right. listeners who are not um, who have not yet heard this segment, but I um, about, I don't know, a few weeks ago, I interviewed Jeff and a few other um, folks in the Midwest, specifically in Iowa, um, about this horrendous storm, which I don't know if you realize this, Jeff, but it got almost no coverage whatsoever on the East Coast. I don't know if it made a lot of headlines in the Midwest, but um, yeah. it was very, very slow to get picked up by the news here. Um, and I, in fact, learned about it only because I follow the trades. <laughs> You know, yep. I mean, yep. it wasn't it was not reported in the Times or even D or the Washington Post, for example, the two papers I follow until a good five or six days had already elapsed. Anyway, the point is, is that we had this lovely conversation about the derecho. And I, I wanted to follow up with you about, you know, extreme weather extremes uh, that we are seeing like the derecho. Now, at the time when I interviewed the people who were local in Iowa, they described it as literally a once in a lifetime event or maybe right. more. Right. Well, was it or wasn't it? I mean, you sort of well, downplayed that a little bit when we talked. You were uh, like, from, well, derechos happen, you know, but nobody's ever heard of a derecho before this. And, and they they do. Derechos do occur. Thankfully, they're they're not they're they're not. <laughs> but uh, one like this, I think the the distinction here is the the severity mm -hmm. and the magnitude of this particular event is is up at the well. It's at up at the top of what would ever be. Uh, probably uh, experienced. And uh, 
Uh, some of the, the survey teams from the National Weather Service that went out found evidence for winds of, of possibly on the order of 140 miles per hour, which is just mm -hmm. something you don't uh, very, very rarely see with uh, with straight line thunderstorm winds. And, and of course, yeah, as we talked about before, it, it occurred over a large area, a very, and which is what makes this so destructive. Right. And what makes it so important uh, to try to, to understand or better understand, uh, because it's not just a, uh, many times we see severe weather hit, but it hits, it hits areas severely, but they're limited, they're, they're localized. In this, this case, this event uh, back in August, it was a, a large area with uh, hundreds, thousands of, of square miles being impacted. And that's, again, that's just something we don't see very often. The only thing like that, that I can think of meteorologically would be again a landfalling hurricane, uh, where we see a, a large, a relatively large area impacted by by this one big event. And it, but of course we don't have hurricanes in the Midwest, or at least not the the uh, severe hurricanes, strong hurricanes. We sometimes get remnants here, but that's it. Mm -hmm. uh, this this derecho type of event though is is something like that. And uh, and the other thing that occurred with this particular event, these the, the Strong winds or the severe winds with this lasted for an extended period of time. Many times a, a thunderstorm goes through and you'll only have the really the really uh, high winds or the destructive winds only maybe for a minute or two, just for a, a relatively short time. This one lasted tens of, of minutes, which again is also very, very unusual and, and one of the reasons why it was so destructive. Yeah, so yeah. Lots, it's lots of... Are, are, they're still being written and, and there will be papers written about this event. And, and as we've also mentioned, unfortunately, the, the damage, the, the total extent of the damage still is not clear. It's still being tabulated. So, but it will be economically, uh, as you mentioned, where does it rank? Uh, we, we don't know, but it's, it's up near the top. It's one of the largest uh, severe weather events that's hit the Midwest in a long, long time. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was kind of like a Hurricane Sandy. It was like the equivalent yeah. of a Hurricane Sandy is how I see it, which was kind and of a did, one, from my point of view, as an East Coast person, that was a once in a lifetime storm. And, and that was on the magnitude of the hurricane. Right. And it, it, it also had major agricultural impacts. And, uh -huh. and again, it's hard to do that when you consider how large an area that uh, you've got this, this food production system set up. But it was so big, uh, it, it, the area impacted was, well, it was, it was huge uh, relative to what we've, what we've observed in the past. And, and it's, it's still being cleaned up. So a yeah. very, very unusual rare event to, to say that doesn't do it justice, but it certainly is, is in that extreme category. Incredible. And so when you saw the appearance of this, because I think um, as if people have been following the, well, in any case, the storm originated, I believe, in South Dakota, and it moved very rapidly, taking most of Iowa, you know, central Iowa and some other states. And it, and it, and it went as far as Ohio, if I'm not mistaken. What we actually had some in Michigan as well, but it did. It was wow. the process of, of weakening and dissipating. Mm -hmm. We had some damage in the southwestern part of our state. We were up on the northeastern fringe of, uh, of the event, and it moved several hundred, well, almost 800 miles in seven or eight hours, something like that. It's just a extraordinary uh, a path that, again, that's something else we just don't see very often, an event like that. Well, I think the, the governor described it as sort of a 75-mile-wide tornado um, that lasted right. for 40 minutes. Right. And I mean, I know that it was in Cedar Rapids for about 40 or 45 minutes, from according to eyewitness uh, reports there. But what I wanted to ask you about is when you saw that storm originating in South Dakota, um, you said to me uh, when we talked about this a few weeks ago, you said that you had actually had a fairly good amount of sort of uh, lead time or warning time in which you could alert people that this was happening. I, how did you map its progress? How could you, I mean, could you tell what path it was going to take? Could well, that, that's, a, that's a really, really important aspect of this because, and, it, mm -hmm. and we have to give credit where credit's due, and that, that goes to the National Weather Service. Mm -hmm. and, Storm Prediction Center as a part of the National Weather Service, but they had warned and had, had, had tried to raise awareness that day earlier on that that there was the potential for an event like this. And it was very, the, the guidance was very, very close to what actually happened. I don't think anybody would ever have envisioned it was as, as large and severe as it was, but the, the guidance that morning, the wording was very, very good. 
uh, in terms of very, it was, it was a, an excellent forecast. And wow. Like in this case, again, it, it, uh, they were, they verified, uh, well, so certainly people, there was awareness there and, uh, at least through the national weather service and through the, the public channels, uh, there was, they tried to increase the awareness of the risk of, of this type of an event. And then again, it lasted over a long period of time. Right. Uh, but but they did they they did a very very good job and, and there was even a hint of it uh, you know a couple of days in advance but that the day of I, I thought they did a just an amazing job and it's it shows you how far the science has come I think it's a good example mm-hmm. for illustration of of it doesn't mean it's going to happen every time but but that was a that was a particularly a good one in, at least in my book really interesting okay so we're going to take a short break uh for a sponsor drop we'll be right back with professor or dr jeff andresen from michigan state university state climatologist and professor of geography um we're going to talk about more about climate and agriculture because really without a hospitable climate folks (laughs) there are going to be some very serious food shortages anyway stay tuned we'll be right back This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, speaking about climate and agriculture with my guest, Dr. Jeff Andresen from Michigan State University. So one of the other things I wanted to ask about um, that, you know, the West Coast, of course, is being, you know, eaten alive by wildfires. And of course, last winter, Australia also similarly suffered um, massive and destructive wildfires. Um, How much do wildfires like when when you see these, you know, horrible apocalyptic landscapes of you know, smoke and ash and orange and, you know, recognize that the sun is being blotted out. What what impact does that have um, on weather to come and also climate change in general? Well, I, I think there's a there's a couple pieces in there that are that are really important to remember. And one of them is is a little well, it's it's one we don't think about very often, but but that that relates back to the fact that as as the air warms up, it can hold more water vapor, and that sounds like a strange thing to say, but it, it's very very important for this this whole issue uh, because the the warmer the, t- the air temperatures are, at least more potential water can evaporate, and what we are seeing here and and many of these and places that you've mentioned certainly the western U.S. and in Australia as well is we're seeing increases in, in temperature, the climate is warming up. And as it warms up, there is more potential evaporation taking place. And we're, we're looking at essentially at a drier landscape. Uh, we also, in some cases, we've got uh, issues with a lot of fuel out there, uh, downed uh, trees or diseased trees or, or trees that have died. Uh, there's, there's a number of factors, but at the top of the list though, is the warmer temperature, you just have uh, a greater demand, more evaporation, and when you well, you increase the risk for for fire to take place, and in, in many of these events now, though they're so large, they uh, they they have their own heat source. They mm-hmm. create their own circulation, uh, literally a a natural firestorm, and that's that's part of the the difficulty with with fighting uh, these types of events. So they're given the size, but it is ultimately related to uh, the fact that the landscape 
has has dried out or dried out more than it it typically does in the past. And uh, that's a that's part of the climate link, and that's why we we hear people talk about well this being a a sign of a of a changing climate, and and uh, it it just it's just a drier landscape mm-hmm. uh, than used to be the case. Even if it's wetter in Michigan. <laughs> yeah, and and of course, I mean, well, and that's a, a good point. It it does it varies by uh, it does vary by region, but. One of the interesting things is even here in a place that is getting wetter, uh, they, some of the projections as we look, especially out several decades, they also suggest that even if more precipitation falls, it might fall on fewer days uh, and become more erratic. And as it becomes more erratic, you can actually, the, the statement to sometimes it's, it's confusing. And I, I spent a lot of time with this one. Uh, some of our, our climate assessments talk about a climate here in this part of the world that we have both more heavy flooding rain events and more droughts. And most people look, mm-hmm. look at that and they say, well, that, that doesn't make any sense. And most uh, on the surface, it doesn't, but there is one physical way that that could happen. And it's relating to, to what we're talking about. And that is that, yes, we have more precipitation, but it's concentrated in a few events in extremes that can cause flooding. But in between those events, we tend to have more strings of dry days. And so uh, you, you're looking at an increase in the variability of the of the of the especially the hydro hydrologic system the mm-hmm. water uh, excess both excess and deficits increase and that's I, unless you sell irrigation equipment I can't think of anybody who <laughs> who benefits from that situation that it, when when precipitation becomes more erratic it's much much more difficult to uh, well to 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 deal with it adapt to it cope with it however you, whatever, whatever you want to call that but uh, extremes are are much more complicated than than uh, adjusting or shifting your practices to long-term changes in the mean. Ah. And that's, uh, that's one of the things that we face here in this region and, and are looking at now with, with research. Well, that is exactly, you have just set me up perfectly for my next question, because as a meteorologist and a professor of geography, you know, when you think about the future, what kind of agricultural uh, model or measures would have the most uh, success in mitigating climate change and climate disaster, like right. It, it, it's that's going to depend, of course, and it always. This is a, a terrible cop out response, but it, it really <laughs> going to depend okay. on the uh, on the on the egg system and where you are. Mm-hmm. But if, as we think here about the Midwest, this is actually going to be an area, especially where we are here in the Upper Midwest. Uh, one could certainly see some benefits. We, one of the benefits we see right now with, with recent changes, we have uh, almost two weeks longer frost-free growing season than we did just 40 years ago. That's, that's a big change. And yeah. that lack of growing season or growing season length, I guess I should say, uh, and, and it being a bit short, that's a limitation on our, our food production system. But it's getting, it's getting longer as the, as the climate warms up. Uh, and and it, it gets wetter. We also have uh, we've had less uh, we've had less droughts. We still have droughts, but they're less frequent and they're less severe than they used to be. At least that's the the observed trend. That could change in the future. But as you look at how to design this, we what what's actually and this is actually already happening. Our growers are are growing uh, cultivars and varieties which can take advantage of the longer season, and as as a result of that, they can have higher productivity, at least potentially have higher productivity. Uh, so that's one direct physical influence. We add on top of that uh, increasing ca- concentrations of carbon dioxide, which of course is the, the primary greenhouse gas, but, but plants can take advantage of that. That's that's at least another mitigating factor or, or it, that should help many types of, of crops. But there are also a whole, uh, a whole list of, of potential problems. Uh, one of them that, uh, that we're looking at now uh, that's it's an interesting one. It's it's somewhat of an indirect impact, but that's that's uh, the pest complex. And of mm-hmm. course, we uh, we think about producing these crops. And if you go out and you look at the pictures, you say, "Wow, the the grower's done a fantastic job." There's no weeds, or you can't see any insects. But of course, that's not how the real world works. It it takes a lot of work to do that. And so, if uh, if a soybean plant is happier with a warmer and wetter climate with more carbon dioxide, well so would probably many weed species or maybe uh, maybe certain insects uh, and especially insects that uh, have not been here before that uh, because of, of climatic reasons 
and they've been allowed to migrate from from other places into the region because the climate, the winters are no longer uh, cold enough to uh, to to knock them out in the in the, the cold season. There's there's a number of uh, well, it's it's almost like an ecology. It, it, they are ecological factors here, mm-hmm. but. Uh, that this is one that that relatively little is known about, but 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 is still very very important, and that is how do we control uh, weeds, insects, uh, and diseases in this in this changing climate? Not an easy not an easy thing to do, uh, and and a lot a lot needs to be learned. One particular, I, I think, it, back to the direct physical factors. One a big concern is that we know that many of our food crops right now in, in some parts of the world. They are currently being grown in areas near their their maximum uh, maximum temperature before the the plant begins to to lose productivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, and this is uh, especially true at night. And one of the things that we observe in parts of the U.S., especially in the southern parts of the U.S., when we have very very abnormally warm nights, uh, and we see a large number of those during the growing season, we'll actually see a decline. In, in crop productivity. And it's what it's probably pointing at is that there's a genetic, a physiological limitation for, for some of these crops like, like corn and soybeans. And if you raise the temperature beyond that limit, you, you just begin to lose productivity. And so uh, our, our agrotechnology uh, industry uh, sector, the, the folks who come up with new varieties, et cetera, uh, that's that's a really really big need. It's a huge uh, a huge request, but somehow we're going to probably have to come up with maybe at least aim to come up with some crop varieties that do better with not just with uh, well we they'd have them to deal with drought and with the lack of water that crops that do relatively better with uh, with less water, but we're also going to have to figure out that that temperature because that's that's also one of the scenarios that there's a lot more confidence in. Uh, almost much of the world, the vast majority of the world is, is warming up. And some of our, some of our production areas around the world warming up more than, than others. And, uh, once you get to those, those limits though, you, you've, you've just got a barrier or a wall mm-hmm. and so it's going to be a particularly tough one uh, to deal with. There's a, there's obviously a lot of uh, money investment and interest in that now, but it's, it's a, it's a difficult one. It is. I mean, I, I mean, you're just setting me up every single time for, <laughs> You're so good at this, Jeff. Um, no, but what I mean, so what do you see for America's agricultural map? So especially like the the corn and soy belt. So if we're reaching the point where the, you know, the never mind the soil quality and the water pollution and everything that goes yeah. along with corn, massive corn and soy production. But if they are reaching the edge of their productivity due to climate, to warming weather trends, do you see like um, the corn belt moving farther north into Canada and we're going to start growing yeah. rice and uh, cotton in Michigan? You know what right. I mean? Well, like this, how much change this is do you an, see happening in the agricultural map? It's uh, a very, 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 very good question and an important one. And and there's a couple thoughts on that. But yes, in general, uh, if if these projections continue to play out and, and are accurate, is looking at the next few decades, there likely would be a northward shift, at least in terms, and and, and we have to put quotation marks around this because uh, it's not so easy just to pick up. You can't pick up the Corn Belt and shift it northward. There are a number of reasons for that. Uh, you one of them, and you the soils soils take thousands of years to form, and one of the reasons the Corn Belt is the Corn Belt and it is one of the most productive areas on Earth is because of the soils that are there. And you can't, again, the, the, this you can't just uh, pick up these areas and, and move them. The other is, of course, you have to have infrastructure to in food production systems to uh, to be able to take advantage of the, the production from the landscape. And, and right. that just doesn't happen overnight either. But the big one is, I think, it's a soil. Uh, and one, one interesting, I guess, reminder about this is we are already seeing this happen. Uh, if if you look at the statistics, and if uh, well, if you do any traveling out in the in the especially in the high plains or in the uh, parts of the Great Plains in the Upper Midwest, there has been a very very real and distinctive shift of the Corn Belt to the north and west uh, over the last couple decades into places like uh, well North Dakota, South Dakota uh, that that twenty or thirty years ago produced different crops. Now there are economic reasons for that happening, but there also are are climatic reasons. Their corn is produced now 
uh, for grain in places like southern Manitoba in Canada. And that also, again, uh, 20 years ago did not happen. Uh, the technology is better. We have uh, we have better varieties that, that can make. But but again, some of that is is climate. So we're already seeing some of that happen. And and those are areas, though, that have that do have the soil resource to do this. But I think that's actually one of the most important factors is that you have to have the soil resource there if, if that's to take place. Uh, but if again, overall, if these projections are are accurate or they're at least in the uh, close there, there would be a northward shift or areas there, there would be a loss of some types of, of agriculture across southern portions of the U.S. with the shift northward. And, well, you you uh, mentioned soils and I, I'm going to I'm right. going to I'm going to go off on a tangent. I warned you oh. I do this. Um, yes. I <laughs> you probably want Why? 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 why is no, no, that? I, I actually do know the answer. I do. I have okay. actually done quite a few programs around soil and soil chemistry and the need to, you know, change our methods of agriculture, whether it's, you know, adding cover crops or no-till yes. or, you know, all of that yes. stuff to help because we are actually fundamentally, we have essentially stripped a good portion of the famous Midwestern, you know, prairie soil, uh, yeah. either through runoff from, you know, disastrous flooding uh, because they don't cover the crop, the, the land in the winter. So when it storms in the winter, a lot of that water, uh, you know, or snow runoff uh, takes away the soil. So, so we've, we've experienced a big loss of topsoil in those areas, largely through our practices of monocropping and just using the same two crops over and over again. And so, uh, you know, so I'm wondering, like, you know, aside from climate change, we're facing having to change up those, those areas just because the soil that you're talking about is ceasing to exist in many of those places or not existing to the extent that it is. And part of what's driving climate change is that very fact that we, that we are not sequestering enough carbon through our crop processes and so forth. So how, how do you, you know, wean us off of that diet of corn and soy into something that's more regenerative that would, you know, mitigate some of the climate impacts? Well, th this is, this is an excellent, an excellent point. And, and actually one of the most critical ones, I think for the long-term future and uh, again, the word uh, that that some people complain it's used too much, but it it's it is we, we have to it, it's sustainable sustainability. Yeah, and that is uh, that soil is a resource, and as you mentioned, uh, given the last 120, 30 odd years, depending on the location, uh, the science hasn't been there, and and some of that some of that resource has unfortunately been lost. We can't afford that. So, and and so you think about the the challenge ahead of us. We've got to feed a world with a growing population. That's uh, another another huge, huge challenge, uh, mm -hmm. and hopefully try to minimize the number of of hungry people around the world. But we have to do it without destroying the resource that that enables us to produce it. And that's, well, I don't feel like the problem is that we don't grow enough food. I think we grow way too much food, to be honest. Yeah, um, we waste. The food we do. We no, that's absolutely that's true. Fifty percent of the food that we grow in this country yeah. winds up in landfill. So I mean, I you know, I the whole sort of feed the world thing. You and I can have another discussion about that. I'm just I don't buy into that mega agribusiness mythology of how the United States alone is supposed to somehow carry the weight of the world's, you know, future hungry on its shoulders. I'm well, just, it, 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 nobody yeah. can do that. I mean, that's nobody. not, that isn't fair. And, really. and it's not even, it's not even re it's not even a real problem at this point. People are hungry because of distribution, because they're yeah. climate, uh, there's economic inequalities. I mean, they're not hungry because we don't have the food or we won't have the food even. I, we unfortunately have to rush along here because sadly I do have to call this quits myself in about five minutes oh. and I have so much more to talk to. You're going to come back, Jeff. I hope you know that. Okay. Because um, okay. <laughs> really, this is so good. This is like so interesting. And whoever talks to a climatologist or a meteorologist about agriculture, I feel like I should get a Pulitzer Prize for this show. Anyway. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for. I'm, I'm glad. Well, I'm glad there there are a lot of uh, you have a lot of options here. I can uh, re refer you to. A, there are a lot of people, but no, that's that's glad. It's it's great to. Uh, great it's to really develop. great to get Provide this you know in the same place. You know, so as you mentioned before, agribusinesses are working very really overtime to hybridize and change up models of commodity crops like corn and soy, so they can control for you know, more or less water and, you know, more greater or less uh, weather extremes. So what, 
how do you predict that those new, uh, you know, those, you know, hypothesized new crops, how will they affect land use? Are they going to, you know, is it, is it just, we're just going to do more of the same, do you think? Or, you know, what is, what is going to happen? They're going to, no, that's, that's actually, it's already changing. And Mm -hmm. uh, the, the industry is already adjusting to some of these new realities, these new uh, recent trends. And there'll be more in the future. The, of course, the, the challenge is going to be how, how can it, and these folks are in business. So of course they're, they're there to earn a living and, and, uh, and, and, and have to be sustainable economically as well. So they're going to have to continually be looking for new opportunities as that, that climate in the background uh, shifts or changes uh, some ways it, and not favorable. So it, it's, it's a, it's a tough thing to do. I think the, given that combination of, uh, of, of players that I, I talked about before there, there at least uh, there, there's some awareness of what, uh, what people can do, but there, there are going to very likely going to have to be changes. I, I think diversification probably will be an important part of this. And, and you also mentioned too, the soil health part of this is, is becoming more and more important. The, the awareness and the realization about that resource and trying to, to maintain the, the productive productivity, but also the health of the soil uh, is going to be a very, very high, uh, well, high demand or high need uh, mm-hmm. of something that, uh, that needs to take place more than it more than it probably ever has in the past. And so, uh, again, collectively, hopefully, we're we're aimed in the right direction to try to 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 take on some of this challenge. Now, do you see that? Uh, here I go again on another tangent, but do you see that happening within your own university? I mean, you mentioned that you have a very robust extension school system in Michigan. Um, right. So there's a lot of smart people thinking about, you know, crop change and soil health and so on. Um, do you see uh, within the university context uh, more of an emphasis on on uh, maintaining productivity, on on growing soil health? You know, because I mean, back in the day, you know, 25, 30 years ago, it was just like, oh, throw some more phosphorus and nitrogen on there. And, right. You know, like, no, that, keep that, it's, rolling, you know? <laughs> it, absolutely. The, no, there's, there is a much more holistic type mm-hmm. of view and, and a realization, I think, again, you, when we have to look at this, it goes back to, again, to the ecology and, and uh, we cannot, we just can't afford to, uh, to not um, sustainably manage these, these systems. And uh, I, I think, and that, 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 that starts with the growers, but it's also certainly in the, the, uh, uh, industry, the research community, all, I think there's, there's very, very strong shared belief in that, that, that is a, that's, that's, has to be a major, a major need or a major requirement for right. how the system works. And, and, uh, that's that, I think it does bode certainly better, more positively for, the future. We, we just can't, we can't do anything without that soil resource. That's right. Absolutely. Unfortunately, I'm going to jump to our last question here, um, but we are going to talk in the future. We're going to, you're going to come back and we're going to talk about vertical farming and urban agriculture just because oh. I think that would be a fun topic to discuss in the context of what we've been talking about in terms of how crops are going to have to move around in this country and how things are going to be changing in the coming decades. You know, like what role do you think, but anyway, we're not going to talk about that now. We're going to talk about this, which is what advice would you have to offer the agricultural community uh, about how they should be planning for the coming decades? Like, how can your, right. you know, information help farmers recognize uh, some of the imperatives that they need to absorb in order to continue to farm successfully? You know, that's a really that's a really tough one, and <laughs> there are, and unfortunately, there aren't a whole lot of really easy answers to this because it is a, it's a tough, it's a, it's a big challenge. It's a yeah. tough, problem. but that said, if there were one thing and it's, it's more of a, a philosophical thing, but I think we have to, we have to become more dynamic in terms of, of how we plan and how we, we, we look at least for the near future, uh, because we are in essence, we're shooting at a moving target. Mm-hmm. And many of the planning systems that we've used in the past assume stationarity or something like it. Uh, and it just, the system just isn't like that. So the, the better able, able we are to, to make adjustments or make changes to our system. Uh, and the more economically we can do that, the better off the, we're going to be. Uh, but it, it's, that's much easier said than done, of course. Yeah. But 
I think there, there's going to have to be, uh, we really have to shoot for that. I think being nimble is the old word that uh, to be able to, to uh, not only to observe, uh, to understand the new trend and its impacts, but then to adjust your own, your own system accordingly. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be able to do that is, is going to be more and more important. I think that is the Holy grail in it. Um, we have reached the end of this particular program, Jeff. I can't thank you enough for being on this show. I feel absolutely thrilled to have met you virtually and I will be putting you you in my roster of regular voices because you are so smart and so well-informed. And this was just a terrific discussion. I thank you so, so much for joining me today. Um, is there any place where people can follow, uh, information that you may have, or are you too modest to have a website or... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, don't don't really have a well. You had mentioned our our Enviro weather site. That's one one. Mm-hmm. But uh, in all honesty, most of what uh, we we deal with and talk about comes through our our Michigan State University Extension. Okay. Uh, and there, that's that's usually where most of it gets out to the general public. Either and, and nowadays, a lot of that uh, would be either well either live uh, webinars or recorded. A lot of it's now uh, both visual and. And uh, so it's, there are more options now than there used to be. I'm sure there are. Thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you my to pleasure. my sponsor uh, and to my wonderful engineer, Jess. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening, folks. I appreciate your time. Bye-bye for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.